0: Excited Utterance The Evidence and Proof Podcast Episode Number 11 Aaron Murphy Inside the Cell The Dark Side of Forensic DNA Welcome to Excited Utterance I'm your host Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Erin Murphy. Erin is professor of law at NYU School of Law, where she teaches criminal law and evidence. Her scholarship focuses on forensic evidence, and in particular, DNA. She is also a co-editor of the Modern Scientific Evidence Treatise. Erin's new book is entitled Inside the Cell, The Dark Side of Forensic DNA, and is published by Nation Books. In it, Erin applies her extensive knowledge of DNA evidence and exposes its soft underbelly. While DNA evidence undoubtedly represents a significant advance in forensics, both as a matter of identification power and as an example of proper scientific processes, it is not as perfect and infallible as casually thought. Rather, just like any other form of evidence, DNA evidence can be subject to error, ambiguity, and overselling. As Erin demonstrates, we ignore these complexities at our peril. Her comprehensive book takes us on a whirlwind tour of new DNA technologies, infamous fraud and contamination cases, lessons in statistics, and privacy concerns. Erin, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be chatting with you. Let me
0: start with a background question. I think it's safe to say that you've devoted the vast majority of your academic career, at least thus far, to DNA. What got you started on the issue, and why has it captured your attention?
1: I think it probably provoked a little bit of the latent scientist in me. <laughs> that might be the captivated the attention, but... What got me started was the time that I was at the public defenders in DC was the period in which DNA was really transitioning from something that was only used in the highest profile, most serious cases to the kind of technology we know it to be today, which is to say, you know, the construction of databases that allowed for cold hit trawls where someone's identified as a suspect because of the genetic evidence alone, more regular use in lower, less high profile cases. And I was lucky to be in an office that saw that happening and got positioned through some funding to educate the attorneys, a sort of group of us to learn about DNA and DNA science. But I realized even then that this was a pretty big sea change and that very few offices would have the same opportunity to kind of master the science that our office offered. And so I think that peaked in general a sense that the criminal justice system was rapidly changing and the lawyers that were overseeing it, both on the prosecution and the defense side, weren't necessarily equipped to handle the kind of changes that were coming.
0: A major goal of your book, as you write in the conclusion, is to show readers that forensic DNA testing is not as infallible as popular culture makes it out to be. Why has DNA taken on this air of infallibility? I can think of several reasons, so perhaps people hear DNA and think uniqueness or that DNA comes from science, which always seems very certain, or there's just this cultural hope perhaps that we want a magic crime solver and DNA fills that need. Certainly when I'm not thinking very critically, even I tend to think of DNA as perfect in some way. Why do you think we do that?
1: I think you've hit on a lot of the reasons. I personally think a big one is that We think of DNA as monolithic. When you read DNA in a criminal justice newspaper article, you think it's the same DNA that you read in the science section about diagnosing breast cancer, or when you read in another section about stem cell therapies, or you kind of think of DNA as a one-size-fits-all thing. And the magic of DNA and the ability it has to give us all this different sorts of information about a person make it easy to lose sight of the fact that the specific tests and the specific challenges in the forensic context really differentiate DNA in the criminal justice system or in the forensic context from the DNA testing that's done in a clinic, that's done in a medical context, or that's done in a research laboratory. I think in addition to everything else you said, I don't want to take away from the reasons that you suggested. I think they're all very true. I just think people get used to like, hey, you know, I made a decision about what color to paint my baby's room based on a DNA test that said they were a girl or a boy. We have Angelina Jolie talking about a preventive mastectomy in the New York Times based on a DNA test, someone reading those things who doesn't know a lot about the science or the technology would think, if it's good enough to make those kind of big life decisions, surely it's good enough in the criminal justice context. It's as accurate and precise, but in fact, it's a very different set of challenges and a very different set of tests in the criminal justice context.
0: Your book tries to remove that sheen or this idea of perfection of DNA And it covers a wide range of problems surrounding DNA evidence, and we can't possibly cover all of them here. So what I'm going to do is highlight a few of the problems that you cover in the book, and then I think we will have a broader discussion. Let's begin with DNA mixtures. Why is DNA testing more subjective than we commonly think, and why should we worry about that?
1: It's a great question. You know, I think this goes back to what I was saying a minute before, which is that in the research context, you are very rarely looking at mixtures. You're taking controlled samples from known individuals and you're typing them for genetic information. And even if the tests were the same, which they're not, that's what the research and medical and clinical picture of DNA looks like. But in the crime scene context, you're just... Picking DNA wherever you can, swabbing light switches or brims of hats or coat bottles. You're essentially just picking up whatever cells you find in the space. And when DNA first came on the scene, the kinds of tests that were used required a pretty large amount of DNA, a lot of cells to get the DNA you needed to re- produce a result. If someone was an analyst arriving at a crime scene, they would pick up a large blood stain, like the size of a quarter or something, and that would be the sample. And when you have a sample that's a large blood stain, you know hey, this is blood. It's a significant quantity from an individual. It might be obvious who it's attributed to. It's the blood that is off the broken glass or the burglar broke in or what have you. So it seems pretty likely it comes from the burglar. And you don't have a lot of questions about what the cells are. Most of the cells, even if some few stray cells kind of ambled into that sample because somebody sneezed or because there was DNA on the floor where the blood dropped, it's gonna be swamped by the blood stain and all the cells in the blood stain. What's changed is a couple of things. And one thing that's changed is that our tests have become incredibly more sensitive. So now you need about, as a sort of standard, about 500 picograms, which is roughly about 100 individual cells to get a DNA sample. That's just the standard amount. If you think about how little that is and the fact that you're swabbing, say, a light switch, we don't know then where those cells came from on the light switch. We don't have the same kind of coverage. of 30 stray cells show up in a sample with only 90 cells to begin with, that's a third of the sample now that is not really attributable to something that has to do with the crime. And so you're getting these lower quality samples, these lower quantity samples, samples in which some stray DNA is going to become very prominent because the overall quantity of the sample is quite low and where you're just going to get a lot more DNA mixed in. And that blood stain I talked about at the beginning, a few cells from some random person aren't going to really show up at all. But now when you test the light switch swab, you're going to have, like I said, a third of the profile those cells came about some other way. And so all of that, I think, leads to this problem, which is that an analyst who gets a DNA result doesn't get a result that says, oh, here's the number of people that were in this DNA sample, and here are the genetic markers that are identified with them. They just get kind of a big soup. Somebody I heard speak, of was likened this to like a scrabble board where you put people's names out in scrabble tiles, and then you pick up the tiles and you throw them into a bag and shake them, and then you tell a total stranger, give me the names of the people who are on the board. And that can be really much more challenging, obviously, to do, and particularly challenging when you're trying to associate any of those people with a crime and there's so little genetic material that was left in the first place.
0: Is there any way to automate or standardize that interpretive process? You mentioned this possibility a bit in the book, but it seems to me that you might be able to create some rules about how to attribute DNA in a mixture.
1: A good lab will have rules. It'll have rules that are based on its own machines, understanding how its own technology works and the, its own instrumentation works. It has rules about the input, rules about the output, rules about interpretation. So part of the job of the lawyer, and this is part of what the book is intended to do, is to make sure that they follow their rules. Because an analyst who isn't following their rules needs to explain why and the possibility that those departures are unjustified should always be explored. They may be justified, but they should be noted. So far, we haven't I think, as a legal community, done really our job, both on the prosecution and the defense side, and making sure that, in fact, the rules are good rules, they're founded in actual validated science, and they're being followed or at least explained when they're departed from. So that's kind of how it works now. There is this movement afoot, or there's a sort of increasing interest in what's called probabilistic genotyping software. And this is exactly what you suggested. A number of people have thought, well, There's so many subjective judgment calls that are made, and the kind of inferences that are made are subject to logical chains. But they require such sophisticated understanding that really this is something software could do better than humans. So if you go back to my Scrabble tiles example, humans could take those tiles out, but they would have all sorts of biases and problems, and they might overlook certain obvious things because they wouldn't be kind of thinking as capaciously as a computer can in terms of running all the different scenarios. And you could imagine writing a software program that would say basically untangle all those letters, produce all the possible name combinations, and then tell us which is the most probable. Xerxes is less probable than Xavier, say, because that's just how common those names are. That's what's been attempted with this probabilistic software. I do think it is a positive development, both in eliminating some of the subjectivity in addressing challenging samples. But unfortunately, it comes with its own suite of issues that make it far from an ideal solution.
0: With the two issues that we've talked about so far, mixtures and subjective interpretation, and part and parcel of the mixture, the transfer problem, the problem is false positives, basically implicating the wrong person. Your chapter on fringe DNA, where you talk about chimeras, that suggests that there are also instances in which DNA can result in false negatives as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works?
1: Chimeras are really an interesting phenomenon that I think we're still understanding on the science side. The gist of it in the chapter, I talk about a pretty well known case now of a woman in Washington who was pregnant with her child and, based on law, had to undergo genetic testing to get potential paternity support. And that testing shows she was not the mother, not only of her child, but of her other children. And she bought the doctors that delivered the kids and the birth certificates and the pictures of her, you know, right after the birth. And authorities just thought she was engaging in some kind of strange fraud. They couldn't figure out what was going on. They thought maybe she was a surrogate. They couldn't figure out why this woman was not the biological mother of children that she purported to parent. It turned out she was one of these chimeras, and they come about in different ways. I mean, some of them are quite obvious. So, transfusion, when you give blood to another person, you obviously give your white blood cells and platelets that, are DNA-rich, and that is going to leave a trace. Same thing with transplantation. I mean, some transplantation, like bone marrow, for instance, is intended, really, to rewrite the DNA of the person in some ways. So there are methods that are really obvious. Neither of those have been the case with this woman. What she instead was a product of, or what scientists have learned a bit more about, is this idea of inherited chimerism, which is the trace levels of DNA that are left in a person, either from pregnancy events... Or very commonly from what's called a disappearing twin, which is to say when the person is themselves in utero, the zygote that ultimately gives rise to their fetus and their birth was previously one of two and they fuse or merge together. And there's a speculation that IVF, where it's not uncommon, for instance, that a doctor maybe implants two or three zygotes, but only one fetus is formed that the other zygotes are essentially melting into the cell makeup of the ultimate baby. And then that baby then is going to have potentially in their DNA profile, those other DNA markers. There's really interesting set of questions, I think, about how frequently this happens, whether things like assisted reproduction will change the rates at which chimerism appears. But absolutely could be the case that someone could have a profile, say, in a database that actually isn't the only profile that would appear in the event that the person were implicated in some kind of crime because they might at the crime scene leave the other DNA profile. But right now it's a pretty fringe, you know, it's in my sort of chapter on fringe interests because it does seem a pretty fringe phenomenon, although estimates are kind of all over the map. It's a little unclear how frequent it is. People have said it's pretty uncommon and not frequent, but some scientists estimate it could be up to 50% of the population has this kind of free-floating DNA.
0: That's the issue I wanted to pursue a little bit further, which is how common these problems are. You've mentioned that the chimeraism may be a pretty rare phenomena. In fact, before the podcast you and I were talking, I was saying that these issues with DNA make for a fabulous murder mystery. There are all kinds (laughs) of funny red herrings that you could throw into a novel. But should we be concerned with them on a day-to-day basis. And I'm not here just talking about the chimeras, but also transfer. Seems that transfer is only a significant problem when you're amplifying the DNA in rather extreme ways and you're only using that 100-cell sample. Should we really worry about this as a general matter?
1: I actually think we should be profoundly worried about transfer. I think chimerism is more of a novelty. I don't want to dismiss it entirely, but I think it's not going to be a pervasively problematic issue. Transfer, though, I actually feel quite differently about because the thing about transfer is that, first of all, it is far more common, far more probable than we ever expected. In the book, I both report on social science studies, but also tell the stories of the man out in California who was arrested and held responsible for a home invasion homicide. And his DNA was found on the fingers of the decedent. And then it turned out it was just because the same paramedics who had worked on him earlier in the night in connection with a public drunkenness complaint had later responded to the site of the homicide and through probably a fingertip pulse oximeter or something had transferred his DNA. There's all sorts of other stories I tell in the book along these lines. Always important feature of these stories is that the person who is ultimately shown to not be implicated or exonerated has an ironclad alibi. So in the case I just gave, he was in a lockdown hospital ward sleeping off his public intoxication, so they knew he couldn't have committed the offense. That caused everyone to have to look harder for how this transfer occurred. Or another story I tell in the book is in connection with the homicide and the person whose DNA was found was dead. And so it was clear... He couldn't have been the perpetrator because he wasn't alive at the time of the offense. Those stories, I think, are revealing because the ironclad alibi makes people have to account for the transfer. I do think there are people sitting in jail now because of DNA matches who are innocent, but who didn't have that ironclad alibi, whose only excuse was I was with my girlfriend or I was at home alone. and, And they didn't have an ability to kind of disprove the science in the same way. And yet, in all likelihood, their DNA was there by accident or opportune transfer. The studies on transfer in a controlled setting, studies where they do things like shake people's hands or have people sit at a table and pour glasses of water for each other, they show tremendously high rates of transfer. There's a study that involves a mock strangling scenario where there's kind of a mock strangler and then the victim. And apart from the fact that 10 days after the strangling, the strangler's DNA shows up on the victim in places the strangler never touched, that's a little disturbing because it could suggest that something happened that didn't happen, but not too disturbing to most people because you think, well, you know, it's still the mock strangler. What is disturbing is that 10 days after the incident, DNA from third parties showed up on the victim, people who had nothing to do with the incident at all. I think we are learning a lot that, for instance, DNA is very rich in saliva. People chew their pens and then somebody else uses the pen and then that person's DNA is all over their hands and then they turn on a light switch. There's a lot of ways DNA gets around that we don't fully account for and that even ordinary cleaning techniques aren't going to get rid of. And I think that's a real concern that we're not paying close enough attention to. Let me just be clear it's less of a concern where you have cases that have lots of other evidence that's inculpatory. So if the case involves a lot of evidence, it's maybe not as much of a concern, but we are more and more using the DNA databases to make matches. And more and more, the sole thing that fits is they live in maybe the general area or they are about the age you would expect or something like that, just as in the case of this man out in California. But it's pretty hard. I mean, the Assumption of the general criminal population is usually about 17 to 45, say, and male, and that's a pretty wide swath of the population. And so opportunistic matches, I think, are not uncommon, especially because you have to recall, we're looking in databases that are filled with people who by and large have been convicted of prior crimes or were arrested for crimes. And so making a match in a database like that just on its face is going to look culpable. It's going to look like, well, this is a criminal. So it makes sense. A criminal committed another crime and we now match them to DNA. Not, well, maybe they live in the Bay Area and the reason why they've been matched to a crime in the Bay Area through a California database is simply because DNA moves around in a lot of ways we didn't expect.
0: So I was going to ask you whether or not we are giving DNA a particularly unfairly hard time because most other evidence at trial is also quite unreliable. Having heard you talk about it, I think your real main point here is not that DNA is unreliable or even worse than anything else, but that use of DNA as the sole piece of evidence toward conviction is a dangerous practice.
1: Absolutely. I say this in the book, I'm not calling for an end to DNA or anything. You know, I think it is an amazing advance that we should take advantage of in a responsible way. It's more that I think we've been very misguided in a lot of our current policies and practices. And I worry that jurors' impressions are DNA match done. If there's competing evidence, if the girlfriend comes in and says it can't be him, he was home with me, and there's nothing else to suggest that this person would have committed this crime except for five years ago they were arrested for something really different. Jurors should really be aware this could be a false match. That just because it's DNA doesn't mean that it's guilt.
0: Before we wrap up, your book discusses a lot of nascent DNA technologies that often sound a bit like science fiction. So, for example, using DNA to develop physical or behavioral profiles of suspects. Which one of these do you think is going to be a big focus of attention in the future? And What are some of the legal issues that you see on the horizon for that technology?
1: Oh boy, this one I could rattle off a lot. I mean, I will say the one I've already discussed, which is this probabilistic genotyping, that's definitely coming. It's here. It's going to be big. I will say quickly about the the phenotyping, the use of DNA to find physical characteristics. There's a lot of talk about that and law enforcement has already used that in some cases, but I actually don't think that's going to be very big. The reality is that this physical description is just not always very helpful. It's certainly less helpful than the actual genetic profile that could match in a database, for instance. So it's always going to be a kind of last resort to no other leads type of technology. And right now, it's not quite where it needs to be to be useful or accurate. I'm not really holding my breath on that one. Not in the near term, but in the long term, I think that the use of DNA for behavioral characteristics will, in fact, become quite common. Because if you look right now, we make a lot of assessments, bail assessments, preventative detention assessments, sentencing assessments, based on fairly crude risk instruments, some of them better than others, some of them executed better than others. But we ask a series of questions that we've tried through validation to correlate to the likelihood of reoffending and so forth, because we just don't have any other way of getting at these important questions. Will somebody offend again or not? And that kind of reliance is certainly no more defensible than some of the early behavioral genetic indicia. So do I think we're going to just switch over to a genetic test in five years? No. But do I think it's possible that in the mid-range term, bail decision will be made partially on genetic tests, partly on a risk instrument or a preventative detention decision or a civil commitment decision would involve a dual risk instrument slash genetic assessment? Absolutely. I don't think that's science fiction at all. And then the last thing I'll say that I think is very much on the horizon and is probably the most legally acute issue right now is a twofold thing, which is, one, the use of these rapid DNA testing machines, these 90-minute machines. They're single-touch. They're about the size of a printer. The goal is to have them in every precinct across the country so that when someone's arrested or brought in, you can just have them tested on the spot. The lab doesn't have to get involved. It's police officers that can take the samples and put them into the machine. They automatically connect with the national databases. And that is going to be a sea change in how much DNA is collected how it's used in our system. It's going to open the door to things what I call stop and spit, which is DNA samples on the basis of reasonable suspicion or some theory of that. And so I think that is going to be a huge game changer. There's laws in place now that are preventing that development because the national database law requires that the sample be taken in the lab and tested by a lab. But there's a strong movement. The lobbying arms of the companies that make these instruments are obviously actively engaged with the support of the FBI and trying to change that law so that DNA samples can be tested in precincts and sent to the database via precincts. And so I think something like that is going to make the debates that we're having now about who's in the DNA database much less salient because it's just going to be so easy to get in a DNA database the way for many people, their fingerprints are on record because they have a license of some kind or nothing to do with the criminal justice system. I don't think it's at all crazy to think that we'll have handheld squad car based DNA typers. And when you get pulled over for a traffic stop or something like that, they'll verify identity by doing a quick DNA test as opposed to going through the brigham roll of possibly falsified documents and all that. And I think the Supreme Court in Marilyn v. King paved the way to all that. The majority opinion painted a picture of just that as an acceptable use of DNA. It doesn't seem like there's a will, at least at this time, to stop that kind of pervasive testing.
0: Well, Aaron, thanks so much for being on the podcast and sharing some highlights from your wonderful new book. I look forward to seeing your work in the future.
1: Thank you so much. It's so fun to be here. I look forward to hearing all the other podcasts.
0: Aaron's book covers an enormous amount of ground. And so in the interview, we were only able to highlight a few of the issues, and were not even able to touch on the statistical issues with DNA evidence, particularly in the database trawling context. Rest assured, though, that Aaron's book covers it all, and there is something there for beginner and expert alike. Everything in flowing prose and accompanied by captivating anecdotes that make it all easy to consume. One of the most valuable aspects of the book is that it serves as an important reminder that DNA is not a panacea for legal proof. Even though it may be very good evidence, more reliable than most everything else, it is still subject to familiar dangers and weaknesses. As Aaron makes clear, these weaknesses do not mean that we should abandon DNA, quite to the contrary. What it does mean, though, is that we should be very careful about the weight the legal system gives to DNA evidence. And as with other types of evidence, convicting based on DNA alone, without further corroboration, is a practice fraught with peril. I, for one, enjoyed Inside the Cell immensely. Beyond its cogent analysis of the legal issues, the book's exploration of new DNA technologies satisfies that desire in all of us to see into the future. And the colorful stories of cases in which DNA yielded puzzling or impossible results really do make me want to sit down and write a murder mystery. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.